0: Hello and welcome back to another bonus episode of Pieces of History with me, Colin McGrath. Just before I get into this week's show, and in case you missed it, Season 2 will be released on Wednesday, August 19th, and as per usual, it will be available on Spotify and iTunes, plus various other platforms including CastBox and iHeartRadio. If you've liked what you've heard so far, drop me a message on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook, and if you have any suggestions for future episodes, just let me know. Okay, so this week I have an interview with Madeline McCauley. Madeline is an award-winning oral historian and storyteller that specialises in tales from County Donegal, Derry and Antrim. She has published several books on the topic and is the creator of DerryGhost.com so I definitely recommend you check it out if you like today's show. So without further ado, it's time to turn down the lights, grab a blanket, gather around the open fire and settle down for the legend of Abrak, the Irish Vampire.
1: Well, there's a story about uh, this man. Now, I, I think that maybe dwarf might be, to say that, might be um, not politically correct. Now, so I'll just call him a man of small stature. Uh, but um, Awak is the Irish for dwarf anyway, but he was called Awatak. And um, they, he was known to be um, someone who attacked people and uh, apparently sucked their blood. Uh, so he was known to be a man of uh, bad blood, which in the Gaelic is Drachola, which is not too far from Dracula. <laughs> and they say that that's where Bram Stoker took his uh, his idea. And um, But it's well known that um, around the... Um, the area it's called Glen, Glen Ulyan, the Glen of the Eagles, in um, and it's a townland and county area called Slack And there's a, a monument there, um, which is not a big monument, but it's uh called the Artax, uh Sepulchre, but known locally as, as the, the Giant's Cave. And I saw it on TV not long ago. Someone was, um, you know, who do you think you are? And this man discovered that he was from that area and he actually visited the. Um, the area, and it's there's a lone thorn tree there, and um, but it's it's very it there's no um, very little vegetation, but there is a big heavy stone over it, and the legend is that in the I think by the fifteenth century there was a poet who had a son, uh, and he was disappointed in this whatever uh, deformity the son had, and uh, he was called Avertac, but. Uh, this um, Aotac was not uh, a kind person when he grew up as a matter of fact he was um, uh, people lived in fear of him some say that he was a a wizard or a magician uh, more a villain but uh, he was certainly one of the most cruel beings ever encountered in that area people were terrified of him Uh, they also said that he could turn himself into um, any sort of an animal and He could even become invisible, Uh, and the rumour was that no corpse would be safe because uh, he sucked the blood out of his victims, and then he fed their bodies to the wolves, um, always under the cover of darkness, of course. Um, Now, the people wanted to get rid of him, so they wondered how could they do it, and they heard of this great chieftain called... um, Cahan. it was an a, a neighboring um chieftain and uh, he was strong and clever and um was known to be um a, a very a valiant person and they sent for him and they asked him could they could he uh remove this dreadful uh, curse from their area and um well he found out where uh our tag lived and uh one night he made his way there and it was a covered ditch and uh, attack lay in, in ditches and usually covered himself over with um, with moss. But um, whenever uh, Cahan arrived there, he took out his sword. He was very stealthy, walking over moss, of course he would be. He took out his sword and he struck a, uh, the mound with his full force and uh, the scream, apparently, that was heard, could be heard uh, right across the uh, from the ban to the uh, to the foil, and um, the blood began to th- uh, flow out and seep through the moss. But whenever Cahan pulled the, the moss away, he himself was almost frightened by how grotesque the face of this figure that he had killed was. So much so that he took off his own cloak and he covered it. He covered the body and he put put his cloak around it, flung it over his shoulder, and he brought him to a very remote area where he dug uh, a a grave, a deep grave, and um, buried the person. um, And for some strange reason, in the upright position. And um, but what he didn't know was that um, druids often said that uh, those who are buried in an upright position, particularly people who are evil, uh, will always rise again and have more power than they ever had before. And uh, so, wouldn't you know, the very next day our attack arose. um, But he wondered if people knew of him before as this terrible... uh, person or terrible animal or whatever uh, who attacked people this time he would take a harp and he would charm people with good music and he played music and apparently so many young women uh, came his way but um, he lured them once he lured them he killed them and again he uh, he simply needed more blood from the veins of his victim uh, that would feed his own corpse um, So Cahan was called again to hunt him down, and um, this time he knew what he would do when he found him. Um, This time he was in a cave with a very, very small entrance, and uh, with his trusty hound, uh, Cahan went there, and um, he waited outside hoping for uh, for our attack to come out, but instead, our attack has been out on the prowl overnight and was obviously not very pleased with, with what it caught. So um, the hound growled and warned Cahan. And uh, Cahan said to the hound, he could speak, and by the way, animals understood, he could speak to animals. The hound went inside the small cave, slithered in through the small hole, and he was waiting for our attack when he came in. And he um, grabbed him by the throat and pulled him now uh, out, and Cahan then uh, took a, a, a knife and cleaved the head almost off him, wrapped him up again in the, uh, in his cloak, and this time he brought him to a different, very remote area, piled loads of stones on top of him, and uh, said, well, he won't get out this way. And this time he buried him lying down, but uh, our attack rose again and escaped. And he set about terrorizing people far more cruelly and viciously than he'd ever uh, done before. And it it was said that his appetite for blood was far more lonesome. So Cahan, being tired of killing and and burying him, um, he needed some advice. And, of course, the person that you went to for advice then was the druid. So he went to the druid and um, he said, look, uh, this man has risen twice and uh, I want to kill him the third time, but I do not want uh, him to live again. And the druid said very clearly, he is not a living person. He's one of the Nyau marav, one of the living dead. So you cannot kill him. The only way that you could uh, safely restrain him is to leave aside your sword of iron and make one of you wood. And he said, whenever you come across our attack again, uh, drive this you would uh sword into uh the heart and I think that's where Bram Stoker may have got the idea of that you see. Uh so uh he said now this will teach uh you know the followers because there were a lot of uh now Marav, a lot of living dead apparently waiting on our attack to rise again and be with them. So um Said the, the druid said, and this time bury him upside down because he must face hell. And in that way, plant uh, once you've buried upside down, plant thorn trees around, and the fairies will make sure that he doesn't escape. So, uh, and you know, place a large boulder on top, which um, was that was the advice of the druid, anyway. Uh, so, Catherine thanked him and even. On his way home, he, he did come, you know, go to a yew tree, cut a big, um, uh, whittled it under his sword, and he tested it on a rock and was surprised how strong it was. Um, so he he let his wolf uh, he let his wolfhound um, smell the cloak in which he had um, uh, carried our tack before, and uh, the wolfhound led him. To where our had made his new uh, abode, which was uh, on a rocky inlet in and Loch Ne, and but Cahan could speak to the eels as well, and he asked them to do uh, something, and they slithered under the inlet and they wound themselves very tightly around our Tak's neck and tightened uh, their noose until he was nearly dead, and at that stage Cahan raised a u sword high above his head and he plunged it with all his might into the heart of Avertak and then he carried the lifeless body to the place now known as Slack Slactaverdy and that's where he buried him upside down with his head close to hell as the druid had said and uh, he searched around he found a huge stone and he placed it over the graveside and uh, then he encircled the grave with hawthorns and um, apparently Avertak rose no more uh, and the fairies watched over his grave, and uh, but the people of Slack Taverty still would call it bad ground because um, you know in modern times uh, the, uh, the owners of the land had many disagreements over the decades, and it just had the uh, you know it just had the reputation of being drach um, Talu, um, which you know bad ground. And uh, another wee thing was that some workmen were going to clear the site and were going to cut down the tree, and uh, they got out a chainsaw, and apparently it's, it wouldn't work, at all stopped working, and as soon as it went outside the circle, it began to work again, and uh, then they there was an attempt made to lift the lift the, the big heavy uh, stone slab that was across uh, over the grave, and uh, but they. Uh, iron chain snapped uh, whenever they were trying to lift it and uh, it fell and, and injured one of the workers who uh, began to bleed. And uh, the other worker said, you know, when the blood hit the ground, the ground began to heave and uh, sigh. So I suppose the question is, were they just accidents or were, is this something that really happened? Um, and I'm sure there's a whole lot, of, uh, you know. There, there's probably other versions of the story, but that's the one that I sort of pinned down myself. And and um, it's not a sort of place I would go to at night. I don't believe in it, but I wouldn't want to go there at night.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. That's su- such a good story. And where, where did you where did you hear it from, or where where did you pick it up from?
1: Well, I I, I picked up. Uh, oh, what goes into my brain? You know, you hear a little snippet of something. And I just sort of um, file it away somewhere in the back of my head, and then you hear another thing, and you know, the two two things sort of come together, and when you hear a third, that's what happens and um, we were going um to uh, Marvelt and uh, visiting friends there, and uh, uh, we were going to awake actually, and some people began to talk about this, you know, um, just on the way people do it wakes. And um I decided that I would maybe do a bit more um just a bit more investigation into it. And I looked up uh the um some periodicals. Uh, I, I always um got access to JSTOR and Google Books and the Dublin um Penny Journal, Irish Journal. I say all of these books that they have in, in the library and uh through that um I was able to sort of piece together the story.
0: So, Madeleine, can you just tell me a bit about your background and how you got into oral history and storytelling?
1: I mean, I, I, I write and I tell stories because I enjoy it. I mean, I taught for 17 years mm-hmm. and I taught mm-hmm. art. And um, one of the things that I discovered about teaching the history of art in particular was that... Uh, Children don't remember how to reproduce a painting, say, in the history of art. But if you if you put a story around it, uh, uh, look at a painting and write a story on it, and then tell them the story, they have the skeleton on which to hang their their uh, reproduction whenever they do an exam. So uh, I suppose in teaching that you're you're always telling stories, and um, you know you were you were asking how I started in oral history. I think that that everybody has the beginnings of oral history. And because we probably all listen to fairy tales that our parents told. And, uh, I mean, that again is, is oral history and, and nursery rhymes, you know, round, uh, round and round the garden. And, um, I mean, that that apparently is the black death, Mm -hmm. you know, where one step, two steps and, uh, or you know that a tissue a tissue all fall down uh you know when you look at the the history of um nursery rhymes, they all tell uh stories, so I mean folklore is just all around us, and um i I actually just used to spend a lot of time in my great aunt's uh house in Donegal, and when we first started to go there, I mean when we were very young, there was no electricity, there was a tilly lamp. Uh, there was no running water, and you had to go to the well, and uh, sort of place that people called into, and you listened to conversations. And um, uh, the thing that I do remember, she always bought the Old Moor's Almanac, which was to predict the weather and, uh, you know, the astronomy, and that she would almost sort of look at the harvest uh, through the eyes of her, you know, through the readings of... Um, Old Moor's Almanac, and I'm desperately trying to get my hands on some at the moment. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was all around. Only, it was only sort of maybe 2001 that I began to think, hey, this is uh, this is history, and I began to take a, a deeper interest in it as well. That, that's really uh, part of the background. When I was at the art college, um, I took up bookbinding as my main specialism, and I got this fantastic book by Fraser, called uh, The Golden Bough. And uh, because you have to take a book apart to be able to sew it together again the way that you want to bind it, I just read some of the things as I went along and discovered that so many of our folk tales and our folklore actually is worldwide. You know, the the, uh, Asians have it, the American Indians have it, the Aboriginal people have it. So we're not... uh, we're not alone in that, is that people for centuries have um, tried to read the stars and, and uh, read the happenings. And um, I know that in the Old Moore's Almanac this year, apparently there was some sort of a prediction which could be interpreted as uh, the coronavirus. I haven't really read it, but I, I was told that, you know, read Old Moore's Almanac. So, um, if that sort of clarifies things for you, it probably makes it more confusing.
0: Does Derry have a, a strong oral tradition with, with folklore?
1: Well, you see, it, it's said that if you scratch a Derry person, you'll come to Donegal very soon. And uh, uh, the people coming in from uh, Donegal um, brought their own uh, history of, um, I suppose, their lives with them and uh, their traditions and their superstitions. and. So there, there, there are there's still an awful lot of that, and I mean, as, as you know, today we're actually celebrating the the 12th of uh, August, uh, the Black Perceptory. So I mean, that that's a, a, a traditional thing that goes back, I don't know, maybe four centuries. So um, I would say that if you if you asked any uh, person to meet in the street, do you, do you know any folklore? They might say no. And if you spend time having a cup of coffee with them, they you would discover that they actually do know quite a lot. So I think oral history just has really been passed down almost without us knowing it. You know, you, uh, it's, it's like saying to someone, "Do you remember taking your first steps, or do you remember saying your first sentence?" Few people will remember the first time that. They were, you know, open to any oral history. I think it's just really in the DNA of, of um people from this area. I think it is because of the the whole um sort of rural tradition.
0: And I suppose, like you said, like if you go anywhere throughout the world, it's passed through generations and generations. And it's probably would you say it's maybe because obviously the levels of literacy weren't there for a lot of cultures, so therefore they had to tell their children and their children told their children and so on and so forth. And especially within folklore, ghost stories and things like that as well, the boogeyman and all these different types of thing Within my own family, there's certain things. Um, my dad had this um, story um, whenever we were younger. It was in order to keep us from going out into the back garden. He said there was a thing called a hairy hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, lo- looking back, it- it's funny, but whenever you're a child and we had, oh. I guess, a sliding door, and I said, "No, if yeah. you go out there, if you go outside after dark, the hurry hands, the hurry hands, going to get you." And like we found this absolutely Sorry. terrifying, but it it did the job. We didn't go outside yeah. because after after dark, who knows what's outside? So it, it there you go. And I'm talking about it 25 years later.
1: So well, I, I, my father said uh, one time um, that. Um, the stories that uh, our parents and our grandparents told us were the best form of health and safety that you could ever get, because you know if you went too near the the, uh, the lake, the monster would come up and grab you, and uh, you know if you if you did this, something terrible would happen. So you you stayed away from all of those things, and uh, he was probably quite right. It was it was a great way to frighten children into being safe um, you know, when, when other avenues didn't seem to be open to them. Um, you, you were speaking about ghost stories there. I, I mean, I, I've actually written three books on ghost stories, and that's my latest project. I wrote um, Haunted Derry and Haunted Donegal because, I mean, I'd known so many places in Donegal that are haunted and so many places in Derry that are reputedly haunted as well. And then I moved on to Haunted Antrim, and uh, I think every castle uh, along the north coast must be, must be haunted. But um, what I so enjoyed about it was that you know you would get the, the just the the seed of a story, and uh, I just I loved the the following through of it uh, and trying to verify different and put it into historical context. Uh, I mean, I remember someone saying to me uh, when I was writing Haunted Antrim, "Have you heard about the Black Nun?" I said, no, well, you know, what's that? And she said, oh, I don't know very much about it, but there is a story about the black nun somewhere around Ballet Castle. So I began to look up and, and I discovered that it was uh, uh, one of the Macquillans uh, who became a nun and it was in Bunamargi in the um, uh, in the convent there, in the cloister there. And uh, so I, I went through the whole and you know was able to set it into the historical context to be able to look through historical books you know that aren't on the main shelves or anything like that and you know i can always find uh, well up until now anyway i've always found uh, a historical connection and uh, so i'm i'm um, i mean it, it still keeps me fascinated i'm um, you know, and I still want to continue to write and uh, I illustrate the books as well. And so for me, it's um, it's it's a wonderful way to keep uh, history alive. Oh,
0: well, thanks very much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. Before I go, have a listen to a quick promo from Dan at the Past Less Travel podcast. He'll give you a sneak peek at a show. I definitely recommend you check it out.
2: What is going on, everybody? My name is Dan Remagno, and I'm the creator and host of the Past Less Traveled podcast. The Past Less Traveled podcast explores some of the most interesting places, persons, and events that you never knew you wanted to learn about. Each episode is an information-packed journey into some of the lesser-known histories of the world. With episodes ranging from ancient Macedonia to John Adams' role in the Boston Massacre, you will surely find a topic that piques your interest. Each episode is 10 to 20 minutes long, so you can fit this podcast into any part of your day. You can find The Past Less Traveled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other platform you may use. You can also stay up to date with episode announcements and enjoy more history content on my Instagram at The Past Less Traveled, all one word, and on Twitter at The Past Less Traveled. That's P-A-S-T-L-E-S-S-T-R-A-V-E-L-D. Tune in weekly to get your fill of some of the most interesting places, persons, and events that you never knew you wanted to learn about. And remember, We are all trapped in history, and history is trapped in all of us.
0: Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Carl McGrath, with additional material by Annie McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.